Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. With a new album out and a New York-based band in place, Billy Joel was starting to heat up in 1976. His show at the Bottom Line in Manhattan on June 10th of that year is the proof. The album, Turnstiles, had just come out a few weeks prior, and the orchestra, as Billy was now calling the band, had been on the road for just over two months. The performance was simulcast on seven radio stations, leaving listeners today with the crystal clear document of the night. Billy and the Band, now featuring Russell Javers and Howie Emerson on guitar, Doug Stegmeyer on bass, Richie Cannata on saxophone and organ, and Liberty DeVito on drums, was a tight, well-oiled unit. The night featured a handful of songs from the then-new record, as well as concert staples from Piano Man and Street Life Serenade. Sonically, the band straddled the New York grit of turnstiles with the West Coast feel of the previous two records. These performances laid the groundwork for The Stranger in 1977, but a listen to this night reveals an energetic, fully realized sound from a band hungry for success. Join us as we dig deep into Live at the Bottom Line, 1976. Well, friends, we have some breaking news. Just announced in the last week or so, the Vinyl Collection Volume 2 is on its way and will be out November 3rd. And I could not be more excited for this. Your prayers and ours have been answered. Michael, would you like to tell them what the uh, concert album is this time? I'll just give you the rundown of what's going to be in the set, including this amazing bonus. So we're picking up with 1980. It's going to have Glass Houses, The Nylon Curtain, an Innocent Man, The Bridge, Stormfront, and River of Dreams, which are both fairly rare on vinyl. And also on vinyl for the very first time is going to be 2001's Fantasies and Delusions. The uh, creme de la creme for me in this set is going to be the 3LP expanded version of Live from Long Island. Guys, it's finally here. It's finally on its way. It's the full show. And I could not be more excited for this. We've, we've heard some rumors about what's in store for us. Uh, obviously, we know it's a three LP set. We've heard the mix is really good. Um, doesn't have the same uh, kind of treatment as Yankee Stadium did. That's all we know. We've been told to expect more banter this time around. Let's just say. Right. More banter and uh, at least one song that's, uh, that's not played live a lot also has an extended section. Is uh what our informant uh, cryptically told us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we can share with you the set list. We've got several songs that weren't on the original. So we've got Allentown, My Life, Quailude Angry Young Man, Piano Man, Don't Ask Me Why, which was not on the original, The Stranger, Scandinavian Skies, Moving Out, She's Always a Woman, which is not on the original, Pressure, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, Just the Way You Are, Good Night Saigon, and Stiletto, which are not on the original. You're going to have band introductions and Until the Night, 
which are not on the original. And then you've got Still Rock and Roll to Me, Sometimes a Fantasy, Big Shot, You May Be Right, Only the Good Die Young, and Souvenir. For an album we've heard a million times, it's pretty cool to know that it's going to be expanded like this, that they're not just going to take what was out there originally uh, you know, on HBO and, and Laserdisc. Yeah, absolutely. And remaster that. And it's in sequence now, am I correct? The original release was in sequence still, but it just had a lot of the songs pulled out. So this is in full show running order. I'm very glad to see that. This was remixed from the ground up. So there's sure modern mixing techniques, but I understand that this feels much more like the live show that we all know and love. So I'm excited to see it. And we're in talks to hopefully do a little something fun around it. Uh, when this comes out in November. So we're uh, still working out some details, but hopefully we have something really fun to announce later with that as well. Yeah. So uh, stay tuned. Yeah. November 3rd is going to be an exciting day. I told Jack uh, that this is <laughs> comes out two days before I fly to Michigan to see my family and to see a couple Metallica shows. So we're going to be uh, burning the midnight oil as it were to get uh, an unboxing video uh, in the can. We're going to get a fun episode doing a roundup of the set as it's out. And uh, yeah, so there's a lot to unpack as time goes. So we are absolutely excited for this. Fantasies and Delusions, I'm personally stoked to see that on vinyl. It's going to be a different experience to actually put down a record and play this. Yeah, I mean, not only the, um, for lack of a better term, novelty of having it on vinyl, but, you know, vinyl always it always invites a closer, more uh, purposeful listen. That's certainly going to be one that's worth really sitting down with. Yeah. You know, side by side by side. Yeah, so certainly. Cool. Yeah, I, I just looked at the CD. It's an hour and 16 minutes. So that's about 76 minutes. So it's just a long CD. So that's definitely going to be uh, over two LPs. Yeah. Let's hope we get some wide grooves on that. Yeah. Oh, that could be real nice. But yeah, I'm super excited about that. And for everyone, you know, I know a lot of our listeners have been talking about River of Dreams a lot lately and not being able to find it at a affordable price. Now, granted, yes, this is part of the box set, but you're getting fresh new masters. I understand Ted Jensen uh, mastered these. You're going to get live from Long Island. To me, that's worth the cost of admission alone. All of these and, uh, you know, a great deluxe package from Edward O'Dowd. I'm also proud to say that I'm also involved this time around. I've got quite a bit of memorabilia and ephemera uh, in this booklet. Uh, so you're going to see some of my ticket stubs, some backstage passes, cassettes and records from my collection, a whole host of stuff. I'm excited to see this final package. That's what she said. <laughs> you know what, Toby? <laughs> <laughs> no you're I michael i'm everything you. that you choose to be <laughs> yeah but yeah it's gonna be a killer set and to see my stuff again in another booklet it's so cool uh so i'm i'm ready to dig in and see what what's in store we'll revisit this as soon as it comes out we now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast let's get back into the bottom line and a absolutely killer show from 1976 possibly controversial take i think bottom line 1976 is the alternate universe songs in the attic. In what way? Well, thank you for the leading question, sir. In this way. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I was listening to it, I, I think a lot about CW Post in comparison to this, much more than I think about Carnegie Hall. I do need to give Carnegie Hall another listen. It never really grabbed me nearly as much as these other shows. And when you hear how like off the rails, so to speak, they were on CW Post, you really, by comparison, notice how reined in they are this time around. And it's certainly mm -hmm. not in a bad way. Uh, the arrangements are very tight. They're very thoughtful. And in a way, I hear a lot of the reclamation of the studio songs that Billy went for on Songs in the Attic. 
uh, happening here already, where it was just the fact that the band had now been on the road for a while, had really gelled, had, you know, had the recording under their belt. And you really hear a lot of it come together. And, you know, in, in some ways, I don't know that I like it better than Songs in the Attic. I probably don't. But I do like the tighter arrangements. I do sometimes like the thinner sounding production, knowing what we know now about how studio driven Songs in the Attic actually is. I appreciate this more knowing that this was actually done live. And, you know, of all the live albums in the world, I don't mind Songs in the Attic being as studio driven as it is because it was really made to be a recreation of these songs, not a tour memento. But just hearing how crystallized these arrangements are and how energetic the band is without veering off into jam territory, I really feel like we have some, to use an oxymoron, some alternate definitive versions of these songs. Yeah, this recording is a nice middle ground between an audience bootleg or even a soundboard recording and a mixed live recording. This was mixed very well, but what we are hearing is mixed for radio. So it's different than a board recording in that it's a much more balanced mix. It's a very clean mix overall, and probably the first of of Billy's career of this caliber, I would say. That's a really quality broadcast. There's the ultrasonic, what, for Cold Spring Harbor? Yeah, the WMMR stuff. So there was a couple, like uh, that stuff that was done on the Piano Man cycle uh, with the original band. So there's a few, but this one stands out in this era for some reason to me. I think part of it, too, is it feels like it's the first because until we heard Great American Music Hall, the Street Life Serenade era was pretty dark. There was not much of a document to be found aside from just a, a, a scant handful of bootlegs. This is where we're really starting to get documentation and to have a live show broadcast on all these radio stations. uh, You know, this kind of thing wasn't going to happen for Billy Joel even just two years prior, probably. And, you know, this band also was only on the road together at this point for, you know, a few months. It's really fantastic to see how quick they're gelling, how great the energy is. And I'm just grateful we have such a high quality document of it in this broadcast. This is a great showcase for Howie Emerson. His style never really came through on turnstiles. You hear it more on these bootlegs from this era. And obviously, you know, he was gone by the stranger. I think this is his best moment because this has him really playing tight arrangements. And he has that country feel. So he sort of bridged Billy Joel's West Coast and East Coast eras because he was from Long Island. And yet, you know, he was responsible for a lot of that country lick guitar stuff that you hear going on around this time. He really was the perfect guy for this time frame. When Billy, you know, talks about the band being an orchestra on this boot in particular, I think it's really expressed the most in a lot of ways by Howie because he has melodic lines that intertwine uh, with the piano, with the vocal melodies. And we didn't really hear that uh, before or after this. I think, you know, he was really uh, attuned to it. I think the arrangements were there. David Brown was great, but David Brown is and was a goddamn rock guitarist. You know, he brings the heavy, he brings the riff, he brings the solos. And I couldn't imagine 52nd Street and Glass Houses in particular without him. But we don't get any more of this nice weaving, this nice sort of tapestry arrangement with a guitar. And we know that right. this was sensitive for Billy, that he always wanted to make sure the guitars were, were kind of contained, <laughs> you know, because he had plenty going on with the piano. And how he struck a balance that I don't think anybody else ever did or was given the chance to really. You know, this also began the era where the guitar duties in the Billy band would become divided. You would now have the introduction of a lead and a rhythm guitar player. 
you know, in this era, especially when it was the transition between the West Coast and the East Coast, there was a lot of interesting textures that they were able to pull out of these old songs. And then the treatment they were giving the new songs was a, a little bit of a hint to what was to come. But, you know, you didn't get this kind of layering in the guitar work, you know, even just a year prior. The arrangements were a little more stacked, I think, so to speak, uh, after this, you know, once David Brown was, you know, in, in rhythm capacity, was really beefing up a lot of what Russell was doing and then stepping out on the solos kind of thing. You know, they were more, they were more cohesive, like one Voltron guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's back the hell up and explain exactly what we're talking about here. <laughs> hey, yeah. So this is Billy Joel live at the bottom line, and it is a famed bootleg that has been circulating for decades now. And it was recorded all the way back in June 10th of 1976 at the infamous Bottom Line Club in New York. And uh, this was uh, just a couple months into the Turnstiles tour. And what's really interesting about this is it's, it was uh, broadcast on several stations here. It was uh, WNEW New York. They were the ones hosting this. At least uh, this is where the recording came from. And it was also simulcast to WOUR in Utica, New York, WHCN, Hartford, Connecticut, WBUF in Buffalo, New York, WCMF, Rochester, New York, WCOC in Boston, and WMMR in Philadelphia. So it was a, a nice cluster of stations. Yeah, Philly uh, <laughs> still getting the love. <laughs> yeah, right. And so really, really cool. I, you know, I know, you know radio stations had a little more leeway to do cool stuff like this back then especially the FM stations, it seemed, uh, when yeah. it was still kind of the Wild West, to basically set up shop for two hours, not knowing exactly what you're going to get. Uh, pretty exciting, I would imagine. I, I want to say this is you know, a sign of Billy heating up because of the popularity surrounding these shows, but it's also his home turf, so it's like he kind of, you know, he was always doing well in New York City and Long Island. This was the third day of a three-day engagement at the bottom line, and it was the early show to boot. So he still had one more coming after this, and it was sold out, as they said, 400 people plus. Uh, I guess capacity was 400, and without trying to tip off the fire marshal too too discreet, you know, too obviously, they just said, uh, you know, <laughs> they kind of alluded to it being stacked. They're being packed. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you, you can hear it. The uh, energy is palpable. It sounds way, way bigger than a small club, that audience. We get a lot of great Billy banter. Not a lot of noodling on the piano, uh, which I, I, I sort of took note of, but uh, we got some banter we haven't heard elsewhere. We have some sort of definitive versions of some banter, I think. The Entertainer comes to mind. We also get a few songs that we rarely, if ever, heard again in concert. That makes this one extra special. Not only is it, is it a great performance, not only does I, do I think it spotlights the undersong Howie Emerson, not only do I think it's an alternate version of Songs in the Attic, it does also feature songs that aren't live anywhere else. Well, I wonder if they still have the multi-tracks for this, because I would love to see this get out here properly at some point, because it's a really fascinating document. As you mentioned, the set list, I love the Turnstiles tour so much because this is just as things were starting heating up, but before Billy had more than a a couple of hits under his belt. You know, he had Piano Man, he had The Entertainer, which was not a huge hit. And, you know, Captain Jack did well in the Northeast and Philly, especially, obviously. So there wasn't 15, 18 songs that he had to play every night. And so yeah. this, I love this era because, you know, as we would get into the Stranger 52nd Street Glass Houses, 
suddenly you have three to four songs off of each record that he has to play every night. And so this Turnstiles run is really the last chance that you get to see some of these songs in the regular set before they start to fall off. Yeah, not only that, but with this handful of great new songs on Turnstiles, you know, he's got his pick of the litter for the earlier stuff. You know, he doesn't have to like stretch and maybe play a song that's not top of the heap anymore. Everything he plays off Piano Man or Street Life is there for a reason. This was the core band that recorded Turnstiles, obviously, and to see how they are already developing these songs live and workshopping them and trying to figure out what's going to stick around and, you know, what are we going to tweak and how are we going to do this one live and where is it going to go? It's really fun to see, you know, the playground for them as they uh, start to figure out this new record. And it's worth mentioning that this is only a few weeks after Turnstiles came out. Turnstiles was just released May 19th, so we are only looking at three weeks from album release to this show. You know, you wouldn't think it by the reaction the songs get. Yeah, even the ones you don't expect to get the response, you know, songs that didn't stick around long, crowd was very receptive. So I I imagine that, you know, this was a pretty, you know, diehard Billy crowd. You know, I wonder if most of these guys and kids and everyone had the record and were just soaking it up and excited for the new material. I don't know. I mean, I think it was also the era when people were just, yeah, I think a little more jazz to hear songs that live that they hadn't heard yet. Speaking of, uh, of a bygone era, we do get this radio introduction, which I think is great because these DJs hit it with the reverence you get for, like, pro football and baseball teams. And yeah, I love it. It's like, and he's taking the stage now, and, you know. Uh, it's like the these, color commentary and play-by-play, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but they but they really knew their stuff, you know. It was like, um, you know, it was, uh, the Mexican Connection, but it's on tape. It's from Street Life Serenade. Like, the DJs like really did their homework here. Yeah, they really did, and I loved that. That's part of this bootleg. I, I'm glad it it uh, didn't get cut off. I like too how you can hear right as they go live them just finishing their line checks, you know, with the mics and. You can hear one minute in the background, like, okay, he's hitting the stage in one minute. So you can feel the excitement and the anticipation as everyone's ready for it to start. Yeah, some great behind-the-scenes stuff there right at the beginning. I, I do appreciate that a lot. And uh, with that, we jump right into Angry Young Man. It's a tight, tight arrangement. It's got to be the closest bootleg to the album. It's, it's, it's almost shocking how close it is to the record. Um, and in a good way, too, just the balance of the organ, I think, is really what does it is really what gets it like mm-hmm. really close to the record. Probably for me, the biggest difference though, is the drums. Uh, Liberty, you know, is really starting to drive it a little bit just with a strong groove, you know, cause on the record during the verses, there's not much in the drum department. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's just, he's, he's the galloping on Billy's, Billy's chest. chest. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's swapped out by a nice steady groove. There's been times throughout the live life of this song where the song would either feel really slow and draggy or like too off the charts frenetic and fast it sits really nice here it it's a nice tempo not too crazy out of the gate and that's hard to do for an opening song too yeah he holds it really close let's talk about lib's drums on this the snare he flips it on he flips it off he forgets the snares are off was he did he not have his full kit and so he was um, turning off the snares. I'll explain what I'm talking about for all, for all you non-percussionists out there. Obviously, everybody has a snare drum on the two and four. It's got that real crack to it. Uh, but you can throw off the snares and it'll sound like a tom. It'll sound like a higher tom, but it'll have the same timbre as the other drums. 
And so what you hear, if you listen closely at the beginning of this, is after the opening fills, Liberty's playing the snare, but the snares are off, so he sounds like he's hitting the tom until at some point he flips the, the throw off back and, this, you know, and it turns the snares back on. But he turns them off again when it's time to do the fills. So I, I, it sounds to me like he maybe he didn't have his full kit or something weird, but he was he was using the snare with the snares off in lieu of the high tom to get you know to get that that full run. I see your reasoning now by by speculating. Okay, yeah, yeah. that's a that's interesting because that <laughs> he would typically go down. It's like a five tom run, so maybe he was playing a more traditional five piece kit, maybe a little smaller because it's a smaller club. So he was experimenting with having that. But that's kind of a, a daring thing to do on a radio broadcast. Interesting. I'll have to go back and listen. It's you and I that are going to pick it up. <laughs> you know, right. It's, it's, it's not egregious. It's, it's just fascinating because I can understand if he started the song with them off and at some point turned them on. That's happened to me before where, yeah, you know, the opening act or whatever, or there's something going on before and the snares are ringing. So you shut them off before the mm -hmm. show. That's that's happened to me before. And I forgot to turn them on until the show started. But when they go on and off and on and off, that's curious. Next, we go into uh, one of my favorites of the old days, somewhere along the line. Yeah, this is a great one that got swept away after this tour, I think. Very tight, very, very tight arrangement. Uh, really nice guitar. This is, I think, Howie's first real spotlight moment. We have the organ up again. This is the first one that hints towards that sort of reclamation where, you know, this is one that uh, you could have almost seen on Songs in the Attic, but, you know, looking back, it would have been like almost too thin of a song to put on there. It works best when it's lean and a little countrified. It does. And like, if it's too bombastic, it's, it'd be a bit much. This may be a definitive version of it. Richie stood out to me on this song, certainly. It had me thinking about his place in the band and primarily being known as a sax player, but Richie is a hell of a keyboard and organ player. You couldn't ask for a better utility guy. I love that Richie just didn't play sax on everything. When sax wasn't called for, you know, he was behind a keyboard, behind the organ, really filling out that sound and really adding probably the the biggest texture of Billy's recordings in that era. You got to give a lot to Russell and Richie in that respect where they weren't spotlighting. Uh, I mean, Richie, once he was on sax, but other than that, you know, between the two of them, they, they were just filling it out. I'd love to. OK, you know what I'd love to know? And uh, next time I see the Lords, I'll have to, like, try to peek. I want to know where their voicings were, how far away their octaves they were playing in. Because it clearly, I guess they weren't on top of each other, but like, man, it filled it out nicely. You know, it was just made it expansive and not, not necessarily like deep or heavy. You know, once Richie left, and I, I love Dave LeBolt and Dave Rosenthal and Jeff Jacobs as well, but the, the use of the organ to fill out the sound started to disappear quite a bit. Choice. It's a stylistic choice to go with organ. I love organ. And so this is great when you really realize how much of that is on there. Yeah. Once the boat was in, he was doing, you know, he had synths. He had like synthesizers replicating things on, on albums and it was a different a different feel. I want to make a point of that a little later too. And the last thing on this is that there's no extended soloing on the tag on this, which was my first clue that they were playing it pretty straight here. They weren't just jamming at the ending and things like that. Billy's in fine performance but he's already battling with his uh, monitors <laughs> oh yeah he's yelling about it <laughs> it's this thing screaming in my face he's audibly pissed you can hear it it is in his voice seems like they get that taken care of and then we get our first taste of some banter with the audience in the way of a guy holding a boogie sign <laughs> yeah, that, that becomes a little uh, a running theme for a couple songs there, talking about the boogie. Was this the, the moment where he says that I'm the guy who I've been to 
a bunch of your shows and I shake your hand a hundred times and <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. not, it's like borderline creepy, but then he buys a, buys him a bottle of wine. Right. Yeah. So, so it's all good. <laughs> then we get into summer Highland falls. And once again, I say stack this against songs in the attic. It's close. Yeah. This is its most impressionist turn. It's the one that sounds most like something from the 19th century. You know, it's got that touch of uh, mm-hmm. Debussy in it. And it's, it's a combination of the, the sound of the recording and he, he catches it at just this, this perfect expressive tempo that's not quite the album, that's not quite an excited live thing. It really just, it's like it's the perfect amount of space between notes for the piano strings to vibrate just the right amount of time to blend yeah. into a tapestry. Uh, I mean, maybe it was just a piano that night, but it was, you know, you just the resonance is unparalleled. I caught wind of that tempo too. It was just a touch back from what I'm used to, and it was perfect for this performance. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, we have these great guitar swells that weren't on the album that evoke mm-hmm. the West Coast, but only slightly. So it prevents it from being a country Western thing, pre- prevents it from being country rock leaves it in this idiosyncratic place because when you think about it, man summer highland falls it's an unusual song it's not an east coast song it's not a west coast singer songwriter thing it really is a 19th century if they had microphones somebody would have written this then <laughs> and how his guitar really straddles that line gives it just a touch of americana without going the easy route and making this sound like uh i'm gonna be a tough guy and say early linda ronstadt <laughs> yeah this is probably up there with one of my favorite performances of this song. So we get more boogie at the beginning of this next one. Uh, there's another reference to whom we shall call the boogeyman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's talking about, you know, watching his language because he's on the radio. Uh, but he, you know, he doesn't want to pull a Lenny Bruce. He says, well, this, this next song is a true story. I say that because a lot of my songs and then pretty sure you can hear somebody in the crowd yell are bullshit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, these folks are used to his banter. They know the lines by now, right? And, and right. he knows he can't say it on the radio, but somebody somebody gets it out there. And some little old lady in Utica wrote to the FCC, I'm sure. And Billy's next to George Carlin and Lenny Bruce, you know, <laughs> at the Supreme yeah. Court. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, George, at least. Piano Man is another one I tend to skip live because like, we've all heard it a million times. And it's great when you're all singing along and it's like, who needs another live version? This is a great balance of arrangement. Again, he's not screwing around with it like he does uh, uh, on some other boots from the era. It's very close to the original, but uh, sheds some of that Roy Rogers backing band kind of feel. And the mandolin is very, very nicely balanced here. Lib puts in just a touch of Lib to pick it up. Like he's doing a lot of straight wall stuff, but then he's got that like skip beat, like John Bonham kind of thing that he is severely underappreciated for you know he has a killer right foot and due to the relatively thin mixes of billy joel albums you don't hear it a lot you have to really put your ear to the speaker to catch it it's in fine form on this on this song and on this version i love the piano bands of this era too because you know it's before the song became the pub song that it is today or it's like everyone's drunk has their arms around each other swaying singing the chorus uh <laughs> it, it was just another great tune in in the canon it was a hit for sure evident you know the crowd cheering when the intro started so you know it was a big song for him but it it wasn't that precious yet it still had a lightness and an innocence and a funness to it before it became a the drunken bar song yeah before it became the 
all right, he can't leave the stage without playing this. And again, you know, here we are with it in the number four slot. It was typically pretty early uh, for a number of years. I, I've said it a million times. I love it early. It sits nice here and then they move on. Which is fun to juxtapose it with Root Beer Rag next because this is one that has not been in the set for a very long time. And Billy refers to it as filler, which is, you know, how it was derisively described in at least one review that Billy, uh, like either an elephant or Sicilian, will never forget. I think it was Rolling Stone that that referred to it as that. And yeah, he says, here's an instrumental piece uh, referred to as filler for all you filler freaks out there. Billy would play this a couple times at the Garden over the last few years, and he's played it here and there. But in this era, it was a regular entry into the set list, and... More often than not, the tempos were up, 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 and away. It was a jaunty tempo. Howie Emerson, tight, tight guitar parts on this, man. Just really hitting the stops. When he says orchestra, this is what he's talking about. Carefully arranged and exceptionally executed. Yeah, he really is shining on this. I think he's my MVP as well on this recording. And we go into our, after this, our second turnstile song. We go into James. And yeah. I was actually pleasantly surprised at the amount of applause at the top when the intro started it seems quite a few people recognized it this is one that does not get the love it deserves and i also really loved how well billy's fender Rhodes and richie's tenor sax complemented each other in tone and performance they really weaved around each other really nicely oh at the top of this one we get some banter we i don't think we've heard where uh he hits the fender a little and then says he's on the pulpit preaching what does he say amen yeah i don't think we've heard that elsewhere the reason is is because he's on the radio so he's he finally gets in his head he's like okay they don't see what i'm doing on stage or where i'm moving he gets it in his head to be a little descriptive of where he's going because he says okay now i'm on the fender roads at a regular concert he typically wouldn't announce it to the crowd who can see him so we take a sharp turn from that right into traveling prayer this was one that was uh pretty i think pretty common in the set lists um, it was. up through this era it's fun to hear a song that's rarely played live even now uh, on the heels of that comes what was at that time a staple and, a, and an upbeat one at that and, and this is one that uh can easily get carried away in tempo and feel you know it gets a little close to it here they still hold it together but it does feel up a tick from the record for sure i noticed the uh, yeah the crowd's actually clapping along keeping pretty good time which you don't always hear. That's a lot of large numbers with that. You know, there's a, there's a slow attack and lung decay on the audience right. applause. <laughs> you know, another nice nod to Howie. Uh, some great guitar work in between the verses on this song. I do love Richie's sax parts on this, but this is the one where it doesn't sound like he's doing an improvement or an enhancement on the studio record because like that's a jammy thing to do is, is to throw in those, those sax lines. It is such a country West Coast song that putting in some like New York saxophone like it would be out of place on a studio document but like live it's like yeah you want that yeah. vibe you want that jumping in feel Johnny Almond was doing it prior as well I notice you yeah. know on the tour before you've got a hoot nanny you know right? use everything you got and we're getting back into another turnstiles track here and Billy says he's setting the mood and asks who's got a Marlboro of course says the ever common line back then need some sleazy jazz lights yeah and we yeah. hear the story about you know this is a story about living in la and the whole new york board to new york drop dead the whole story that we've heard he does mention that he really liked la you don't hear him talk about that as much the story had always been that like oh, i hated la i couldn't wait to leave but he's fairly complimentary about his time in la he's like you know i like you know i liked it out there it was good but it was time one would say he loved those days 
feel like I'm really uh, fawning over this recording, but this is another example of uh, a song I'll usually skip live on a boot. I, I really enjoyed hearing here again. Okay, now this is the one where Sans Orchestra, the organ hits the mark so well. It doesn't sound like a live band-aid, you know, it doesn't sound like shit. We don't have a string section. Uh, all right, Richie, just fill it out on the organ. I guess that'll do. It really sounds like it's in place here. And speaking of the banter, he really <laughs> sets the scene on this one. And maybe it's because, like, you and I didn't hear it until the 80s, but, like, music our grandparents or parents listened to, and so you wouldn't equate it with sleazy at all. It always sounded classy. It always sounded like real AM to me before I knew what AM was. It's always funny to me that he imagined this being sleazy. It never sounded sleazy to me. And he kind of pokes fun at, like, other New York songs. And he's like, I don't want it to be that. I want it to be something you'd hear on a jukebox in an Italian restaurant. Oh, maybe he should have gone with accordion on it. That would have sealed the deal. Did you imagine that? That could have been interesting. Then it might have fit on the, on the stranger a bit more. After this, we go into uh, one of Billy's classic rock and roll jive rants. He's really taking the piss out of Kiss on this one, huh? This is 100% ain't bit Kiss. Yeah. <laughs> like, no doubt. Like, he's talking about guitar shooting fire, platform boots, the lump in your pants, spitting fire, yeah. all these things. It's Kiss. Kiss was New York, too. This is not only conjecture, but also projection. I wonder if, especially at this point, was it frustrating to Billy that he's putting so much into these songs, he needs a, a larger band to do it, he's writing complex stuff, and these clowns look like they got makeup shot out of a cannon at them, playing like some of the most basic stuff in the world, and are making money hand over fist. It's gotta piss you off a little. Billy's been slugging it out, slowly grown his thing, his career and his audience base, slowly, slowly, slowly. And Kiss started fairly early too, but it feels like their explosion was fast. I mean, it was fast and it was lucrative. You know, they had the Kiss Army. What, 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 you know, who would Billy have? The piano men? Like, <laughs> 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 there was no marketing like that that you could have pulled off. They were the early adopters of the merchandising bonanza. Like, if they could put yeah. their logo on it, they would, and they still do. I remember they actually sold Kiss Air Guitar Strings, which was just an <laughs> <God>. empty bag. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, uh, they have a couple good songs, but, like, talk about a band that did not hang the moon. And they made, they made enough money, you can make fun of them all you want. Like, Gene Simmons, you suck. There, I said it. Like, go cry in your $100 bills, which you're not even going to do. You're going to blow your nose on them, so. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Stanley put out a really good soul record couple years ago actually really yeah hmm. it's it's a bunch of like you know 50s and 60s covers but it's like really good stuff he's got a killer band and he's like singing soul songs all right i'll have to check that out that yeah. could yeah that either goes really well or really badly you're at just at the point in your career where it's like man i'm doing whatever the hell i want you bite you don't i right. don't care anymore like those are the best albums man <laughs> and that's what this was because i've actually watched yeah. some interviews and he's like this is the record I've always wanted to do because this is the music I really actually like. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> like, like you know, he's like, this is the kind of music I love, so I've always loved singing this kind of stuff. It's actually pretty good. I mean, look, Detroit Rock City is a great song. The one ballad, not Beth. I'm blanking. Hard Luck Woman. Yes. It's a stupid song, but, it, you know, it's a nice sentimental thing. What I give Kiss a lot of credit for is they were the band that inspired a lot of great bands to develop a good stage show. They inspired a lot of bands that had chops, to also have a really cool stage show. Well, that's fair. But Billy doesn't care. He's like, no, he care. just Billy's sees it for a, what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Billy's like, F this, you know. <laughs> I don't blame him. 
but yeah, I, I do wonder about his mindset on that. You know what it was like in those days when you when you. I mean, especially because um, you know we talked to Keith Yates, you know who who uh, credits himself at least with getting Piano Man out of the cutout bin. You know he talked a lot about, and this has been corroborated elsewhere, just how streamlined rock and roll had was becoming. The studios figured out the formula and were pumping out formula bands. Kiss is probably one of the peaks of that. They're an ample punching bag in that in that sense. You know. Yeah. Billy was the guy where the song was the most important thing of all. And everything else was the byproduct of the song. But when you'd have like the band like Kiss or some others like that, it was the other way around where that was the least important ingredient of the soup. Like New York State of Mind is going to work without the sleazy lighting, but the sleazy lighting is the icing on the cake. You know, because at the end of the day, you got a great song there was a lot of bands that were exploding that didn't really have that and had to rely on the big exciting show so that leads us right into the entertainer there's almost more to say about that than the song but billy has this nice vocal riffing in the beginning like was common back then this is a hard one to replicate live because it's so layered there's so many there's a moog going on there's like an oompa loompa moog it's a bomb 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 it's like a tuba but it's a synthesizer there's a banjo going on you know, it really, you know, there's a sound of somebody like dragging the kitchen sink into the studio. And then this time around, not only are they hootenanning it up just a little, but then they do a dropout, like for a nice contrast. Like instead of like yeah. trying to go up and up and up, they drop it back down for once. That, yeah. Nice. That's a, it's an economical move. This is one of the songs where the radio edit is so jarring because they skip mm-hmm. a verse, I think it is. Suddenly going in after the, uh, one of the verses, suddenly the arrangement is way more full. Yeah, and <laughs> it's because point. you're missing like a whole buildup in another verse. Uh, another quick turn here into Ballad of Billy the Kid. Some of the elements that we'll hear on Songs in the Attic, most notably the stops uh, after One Cold Day, a posse captured Billy. I dig the guitar work on here. Mm-hmm. The tone's a little brittle on this song, a little bright. I think, yeah, this is one where Songs in the Attic is a clear winner just because it fills it out without needing the orchestra. I, I do enjoy the organ work here. You know, one of the few times where the Oyster Bay Long Island line is going to get a crowd cheering. <laughs> it was pumped in for Attic because that was a sound check recording. Here you've got the genuine crowd genuine. cheering after that line. Clearly they knew that that was happening in New York when you would play this song. Same thing with the na-na-nas that the band was doing near the end. Na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Brad Lee and the other engineers sang on songs <laughs> in the Attic. Right. Larry Frank and everybody. Here you've got the <laughs> band all chipping in on it, which is fun. We get the band introductions. Howie Emerson is credited as playing all the guitars, every single type of guitar. <laughs> What's the, whatever the line is there. Every guitar in the world. Did you have that noted or did you remember that? I wrote it down. You, oh, okay, I was about to say, you you weirdo. <laughs> I'm weird, but not that weird. I wasn't going to remember it. <laughs> Out of the gate, Billy says that this is not a backup band. He gives the band love at every, every turn, which I like. He makes it clear that he's not a solo artist. This is an orchestra where we're a band. Yeah, they're not, you know, the little folk who make him what he is. Richie first, and then Howie Emerson every, plays every guitar in the world. Doug Stegmeyer is the rock of the group. He plays yes. Fender bass. And this next guy looks like he's French, but he's from Long Island. <laughs> Russell Chavers. <laughs> and then he makes uh, him and Liberty are joking about him being Sicilian. I couldn't quite yeah. make out all the in-jokes. Right. But, you know, they've only been playing together half a year at most, you know, whatever at this point. And they, 
it's like the banter between them is already there. Like they've been playing together for 10 years. It's great. They sort of knew each other in passing. So it wasn't like they were total strangers, but yeah, yeah, that was it. That was an instant chemistry for sure. Brings us into, I've loved these days. A celebration of decadence, as he says. I don't have too much more to say on this one. It, it hits the same great marks as a lot of the other songs on here. Just being that tick up in energy and in, in cohesiveness of the performance than the studio version without being sort of like blown out or bloated or anything else. Yeah, a really nice vocal from Billy. Uh, li- as I was listening through this song, it mostly made me think, I, you know, that I just wish this song stayed around more. It requires patience because it so rarely takes off. It keeps getting close and then moving away and close. It's a, really a tease. Kind of like Street Life Serenade in a way. Street Life Serenader. Street Life Serenade had more parts to it. That song peaks, it comes back down. This one comes back, yeah, and that doesn't really hit it till the very end. And even then, it's 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 a little understated. The showcase is the um is the sax solo. What is that? A uh, soprano sax, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like an interlude we between s- scenes and on Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of like like the scene in Godfather Two where they're at the theater and and you know yeah. it's, it's an operetta. It's got that sort of early twentieth century. Yeah, you know, to me, you know, kind of, you know, New York immigrant. Thing. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just thought of that. Just kind of, nice. it kind of crystallized. I think it's always been hanging in the back of my head. And I think I just like kind of really put that into words. Coming out of that, we are going into Billy's impression segment, which is, you know, something we would see quite a bit in the 70s. Makes for good fun, especially on the radio. You know, it's kind of like right. his little radio show. <laughs> in juxtaposition which i guess is one of my words for the day with what he's got to say about kiss like you know he's poking fun but it's so good natured when he's doing joe cocker especially and a little bit of springsteen this would be a regular staple for quite a bit we go into yet another uh turnstile song quite a bit of turnstiles on this we go into one of the other songs that would stay throughout the duration of billy's live career to date that's miami 2017 Really good energy on this one. They're finding it. It's nice here, but I mean, it's surrounded by so many gems that it almost kind of loses its luster undeservedly. I see where they're starting to develop the song, which I like. That's why I do love all these older recordings. I can see the released live albums, Songs in the Attic and the Russian record, all those like time frame records where it's like, this is how the band was playing them at this point. This is how the band was playing it in 87. I'm so used to those versions. I love hearing how they developed into where they got. Uh, Now we got some more radio commentary. Yep. It's the encore break. And again, these guys did their homework, man. Well, Billy's been doing three encores and, you know, this and that. And, you know, day three sold out and everything else. You know, you realize how much people were into it back then. Like how much it meant to the DJs. You know, like these were dudes. These were guys that were into it and they were on the radio because the music, you know, music really meant something to them. Not that they're not now, but it's not quite the same. It's it's so different. Yeah. They were the CNN of the culture. They were bringing stuff back from the front. I don't know how many more metaphors I can mix in, but I think you get what I'm saying here. <laughs> so this is before corporate America got a hold of radio. These guys who loved music, who just could take chances on music they liked, and they got they got to curate these things, you know? Just their day-to-day playlist, what they would play, they got to curate the records they loved and turn mm-hmm. people onto the music that they were into. How cool. This reminds you how, how important YouTube is now. I mean, I just, sometimes I get on these tracks, but, you know, that's where you see it now. I know, um, it's very you know, strange. People yeah. sort of championing things, yeah. And we get Captain Jack. I always thought that the cymbal swells in the very beginning were weird. 
where there's nothing else going on, but he's just doing cymbal swells before the piano even comes in. They did that for quite a bit during this era. I really did dig Billy's piano intro. That's one section of the song where he adjusted what he was playing in the intro quite a bit based on his mood. Yeah, no, I agree. That, that makes a lot of sense. That was very insightful, Michael. That was, that was well done. In no way did my computer shut off. I have no clue what the hell you just said. <laughs> well, then we need to have this happen more often. You've never agreed with me so much. <laughs> this was one song where uh, this intro section ebbed and flowed quite a bit over the years where Billy had several different incarnations of the intro before everything started to kick in. He has very different themes throughout the years that were connected to the melody, but very different and you know, transitioned really nicely into the into the band intro. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think there was a couple of extra stops in it. it. Sounds like he's hitting the moog a little at the end. I mean, I would love to hear a straight up Keith Emerson "Lucky Man" <laughs> ending on this. You know, it's just oh like, yeah, just takes over. And I'm not talking studio. I'm talking like letting him do his thing for eight minutes. And here's where it gets interesting. And I'm going to say slightly disappointing. This is, I believe, the only live rendition of All You Want to Do is Dance. To the best of your knowledge, am I correct on that? Yeah, this is the only one that I know of. Not to say it doesn't exist elsewhere, but yeah, super rare. Here's the shame of this. And before anybody calls me a greasy thug about it, I say this for a specific reason. The accent, it really ruins it. Not because it's an accent, but it's like they come out swinging so nicely on this. It's got that like encore vibe it's got that riding the crowd's energy vibe to it because it's a stomper it's got that heavy thump to it and it's the only like real version we have of it live and he's putting on the the patois and it's ah, it just it, it detracts from it. it just it takes you out of the moment there's a couple times on this boot where he he kind of cycles through his voices i didn't really mention this elsewhere but i guess i'll say it now you know he's in natural voice a lot he sometimes puts on that like heavier vibrato thing that you really heard on i'm gonna say songs in the attic where i think he really leans into it he does that a bit but not too much on here he's in very natural voice on this one he cycles through throwing in some extra grit yeah he puts in that vibrato he does it regular and he does the jamaican accent and mm-hmm. it's it's great when he comes out of that accent and he's he's normal and he throws a little dirt on it. Those are the moments that make it shine. And it's a shame that he didn't crack out the whole song like that. Because we would have really had a standout live version that would that could stand on its own and be like something you could show somebody and be like, this is a good song. Yeah, he was playing too much with the vocal delivery, for sure, which is too bad. It was a treat to hear it because you know, we would never hear it again, practically. And the drum and guitar work is really nice. And, you know, it had the potential to be a really fun song surprised that it was in the encore like i said it had encore vibes i'm surprised almost that it didn't stay in a little longer maybe they didn't know what to do with it live maybe they were he was just having trouble nailing it could have been why also he was he was cycling through all those voices just trying to figure out what to do is it a novelty song does it have something to say should he lean into it is it too much to like give it passion do the lyrics just not support that level of intensity for as great a singers as this band is, they really didn't do much on this song that where it calls for it. You know, why don't the Beatles get back together? There's that great la 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 ooh la 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 and some fun things like that. It's really not prevalent on the live version. Would have been nice to hear them sing a little more. There's a lot of reasons why songs don't stick around live. Sometimes it's just they get pushed out early by another set of songs. I mean, heck, Scandinavian Skies. 
which I know we've talked about on Live from Long Island, it was a killer version, but it didn't survive after that tour. I mean, because you had like six hits off of the Innocent Man album. That's definitely <laughs> yeah, yeah, going to yeah. go. You know, and sometimes it's just, they, like you said, they never find its place. It doesn't quite land where they're hoping. Another fun one from the Piano Man era coming up next. With Worst Comes to Worst, these two are a lot of fun live back then. Uh, we got Ain't No Crime coming up. This is the proto big shot, you may be right, big ending thing. Billy was doing it even back then. You know, he had his two biggest rave ups, not hits, but just barn burners. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, Weekend Song, you know, we had our words about that two years ago. The lyrics are a little, uh, fall a little flat. You know, obviously are not lived in. Today, we would say are not lived experiences, but they didn't say that back in the <laughs> 70s. But yeah, man, live, it's always a hoot. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, we heard it on Great American Music Hall. We hear it on uh, a couple of the boots. CW Post, yeah. I want to say CW Post because I've said that like five times already today. It's my turn to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I kind of just lumped these two together. You know, I didn't make too many notes. I was just bopping. I was in the moment, even though it was, you know, recorded. (laughs) I could have gone back, but I didn't. I like that he closes the show with these two songs that are like good live songs, but not hits. I think that's a cool choice. He totally can't get away with that now. To me, it's great. And the crowd's along for the ride. Like I said, All You Want to Do is Dance had nice encore energy to kick it up a notch. So coming out of an edit, we approached the bench on this one. There were some versions of this concert that appears to have souvenirs spliced in. And so we are not sure if that was spliced from another performance or if that was part of that show. Because Michael's version, which we were using originally, didn't have it on there at all. Setlist FM shows souvenir and like you said, some folks spliced it in. So it's hard to say whether that's the case or not. I'm going to say it's spliced in because who the hell would have taken Souvenir out? Like nobody would go through the trouble. Yeah, because there's the radio commentary after that. And maybe it was from a different bottom line performance and then, you know, somebody packed it on there so we have it. But we're not treating it as canon. It's like we've, it. we've done enough for you people. You, you go <laughs> listen to it yourself. And so, yeah, that brings us to the end. Fantastic bootleg. Fantastic show. It's just such an exciting moment in time in Billy and the band's career. Yeah, especially looking back on it and knowing that they were about to hit. I mean, you could feel the energy there, but, you know, Turnstiles as a record was floundering, so things were far from certain. Looking at it with what we know now, you could see the energy was palpable, the excitement was there, and you could see the seeds for what would ultimately pay off. And, And thank goodness they kept at it and got another shot with The Stranger because this era... Is so exciting. What an amazing document of this early Turnstiles era. The Carnegie Hall show, which we'll cover that release at some point. And that's essentially the end of the Turnstiles era because that's before they recorded The Stranger. So it's really interesting to hear a really good early show. And beyond that, this is a very enjoyable one. Sometimes you get one that's like, it's fun as a, as a big fan to listen to, but you might not go back to. This is one you could listen to on its own. Like, you could crank this in the car. It was thoroughly enjoyable. We review certain shows and I enjoy listening to them for posterity's sake and for the documentation of them. But there's a lot of poor audience recordings out there and there's a lot of average (laughs) (laughs) documents. And so to have one that sounds this good and captures the energy this well, it's one from this era that I'll certainly find myself going back to time and time again. And what do you all think? You've, you've been silent this whole time. Yeah. It's time to speak up. Get on those keyboards. Let us know what's what. I, w- I want to see you typing with one hand and playing a, a mini Moog with the other. Yeah. Okay. So who knows this boot? Tell us your thoughts on it. How long you've been listening to it. If any of you intrepid travelers were actually there, send us some pictures. Do something 
Yo, speak up. And uh, if you haven't heard this one before, give it a spin. Give us your unvarnished take on it, man. We want to. We want those hot takes. We want to know exactly what you think, uh, having listened to it. You know, come fresh off it and then uh, start start a typing. Yeah, hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, or X as it's called now. Our uh, our amazing Discord server. Uh, we've got a great audience there. You know, a lot of the cool listeners hanging out. Chime in. Let us know like right away. I, I want your hot takes. And your cold yeah. take. Let's let's yeah. see what you got for this show. Yeah, send it over. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Find us, as Michael said, on all the socials. And when you're done with that, uh, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, give us that five-star rating and positive review. Every five-star rating and positive review lets our technical overlords know that we are a podcast of merit and they should serve us up to more people. So it makes it a fast, easy, and fun way to help grow the community. You all clearly think we're a podcast of merit because a couple of weeks ago, back in August, we hit 150,000 oh, downloads, yeah. which is amazing. Amazing. I remember when we put out our first couple episodes, we're like, dude, 24 people listen to it. And we think we don't know seven of them. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, three of those were me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mom. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And we're excited for that. But to see us hit 150 gosh now just a couple days later we're just about at 151,000. this is august 29th that we're doing this one it's amazing and you guys are just killing it with the downloads and the comments and the emails and i uh, never would have predicted that we'd have that three and a half years in so we are incredibly thankful for everybody it's nice to make an impact it's nice to see that people are interested in in it the way we are and since you all are kind of honored to be the one to to bring it to you it's pretty cool you know we're still having a blast doing it you know our scheduling and technical woes and deadlines aside you know <laughs> that comes with the territory but Which, you know, uh, all right all right it's all on one side of this zoom call <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, you take the bad with the good with me. <laughs> hey, man, it's I. I wouldn't. Well, I, I would. Don't say I wouldn't have it <laughs> any other way. We'd be able to have stuff done sooner if that were if I had my brothers. This is true. Yeah. Listen, everybody. If anybody wants to produce this shit, or just just sit in the room with me and like be like, no, sit down. No, make sure it's plugged in. No, your mic's not working. No, it's not working. No, stop what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and there was that one session of like a month or so back where you were having issues for like a half an hour or 40 minutes. Yeah. I was fine at the time. Right. And then you got yours <laughs> happening and suddenly my audio got wonky and everything was recorded at oh, like yeah. quarter speed and I couldn't yeah. fix it. And so we had about an hour and 20 minutes of struggling technical difficulty blues. Yeah. And we called it a night. As much as I hate all the we didn't start the fire parodies, I want to make one that just like lists all the shit that goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what about the you know, my quote unquote vacation to California? That was like I was sleep deprived as hell, dude. I was editing like on the sitting on the floor editing in Philadelphia, sitting on the floor editing in California, yep, <laughs> like in the airports. Right. right, and then we recorded at two a.m. before a seven a.m. flight. Yeah, yeah, I took a nap. I think, what'd you do? You went down and like washed your, like threw your stuff in the dryer because we walked home in the rain. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I dried yeah. our clothes <laughs> while you took yeah, a nap. Yeah. I don't even, did you dry mine? Did <laughs> yeah, you, I no, did. I think I just like peeled off. What, oh, did you? Oh, thank you. Sorry. I, pre I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I think I dried your jeans, at least in your shirt. Right. Wow. Yeah. I was just like, F this, I'm going to sleep. <laughs> well, just because I've had experience with packing wet clothes and it's not pretty. 
Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And I had a longer, <laughs> I had a longer jaunt than you did. But you know, we love it, man. We we we're still having a blast at the end of the day doing this, and we're we still like each other. We're we're better friends than ever, yeah. I would say. And you know, we've kind of paced ourselves and kind of structured this podcast for the long haul. We yeah. still haven't touched on some of the big heavy hitter albums, Stranger. 52nd Street, Glass Houses, Stormfront. You know, you guys were so incredibly responsive to our Innocent Man episode where oh, yeah. we did the live listen along. We got so many comments and messages saying that they loved the, the live commentary. So I'm happy to report that we're going to continue doing that with the albums that are coming down the road that we haven't done yet. But it also now gives us an opportunity to revisit the albums that we've done in the last three and a half years and kind of do a new spin on them. So we can revisit, you know, River of Dreams and Cold Spring Harbor and all the other albums and actually listen along to them in real time and have a, you know, have a kind of a fresh um, look on things a couple of years in. We did the heavy lifting on them already, so it'll be nice to just kind of just riff on them. The Innocent Man record was the only time we've listened to a Billy album together. It'll be fun experiences because, you know, even though we've listened to them all a hundred times, it'll be the first time that we're going to be sitting with each other, you know, playing these songs at the same time. Uh, So it'll be a whole new experience for both of us. And I'm stoked that you guys liked it because we, you know, we we didn't know how it was going to pan out. We're like, this could very well be a one and done kind of situation. Mm -hmm. But you guys dug it and we had a blast doing it. I'm pretty confident in saying that this is going to be here to stay. I'm going to throw a gauntlet down for us. Okay. In the next year or so. We need to record like three or four of them at the same time, but we have to do it like when we're in the same place. Like we'll set up yes. somewhere and like just like have a true live listening party. Thank you all. Yes. Go give this a listen. And I know you don't have a PA system in your house, but turn your radio all the way up and invite your cranky neighbors over. And we'll see everyone real soon. See you guys soon. Thank you.